Hey guys, this is your host, Tim Powell from the Oil and Gas Council. Today we are joined by Adam Watchers, CEO of Watchers Energy Fund. In January 2020, Adam went on the record to say that the U.S. oil and gas industry had reached peak permian, stating that current shale oil production levels were unsustainable and grossly uneconomic, and that it was only a matter of time before U.S. production began to fall. With the COVID-19 pandemic and the oil price war hitting the market with full force only two months later, Adam points out that his theory of peak Permian is now only being sped up. With the destruction of M&A demand, tons of trapped capital in the system, and a variety of other factors at play, Adam predicts the fallout that will occur in the upcoming months and years, and how Watchers Energy Fund plans to navigate the market with their unconventional approach to private equity investing. Well, Adam, thanks for joining us today, uh, and, and thanks for doing this. I'm looking forward to the chat. So am I. Uh, uh, Tim, it's always great to catch up. Listen, um, you know, for those who don't know you, I think a, a very brief walkthrough on your career, you know, I, I don't want to focus on that too much, but I think your banking uh, acumen really speaks to your unique insights and feel on the M&A market and why you you ultimately decided to launch a private equity firm. So if you can just walk through that briefly. And then, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this, Adam, because when we've chatted in the past, just your, your views on the world are very unique. And, you know, I make a living talking with CEOs day in, day out. And there's a lot of smart people out there. It's no um, discredit to them, but your views are always a bit different. And um, it's not just because you have a, a, you know, a crystal ball that we don't. I just think you're, you, you have a lot of conversations and are able to kind of see um, forward in a different way. And I think the conversation today will, will kind of speak to that. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. But yeah, let's start out. Watchers & Co., Scotiabank, and, and then where you're at now with Watchers Energy Fund. Sure. So I've spent most of my career in the oil and gas business. Starting almost 30 years ago, back in 1991, we had a uh, oil and gas m and firm called Watchers & Co., which uh, we built up over about a 15-year period. We had offices around the world, you know, Houston, Denver, Buenos Aires, Singapore, London, and we were headquartered in, in Calgary. So, uh, we had about a third of our deals in the United States, about a third outside North America, and about a third of our deals in Canada. So uh, in that um, time frame, you know, we're uh, doing having several tens of billions of dollars worth of transactions in a year. So. I got a really good feel for what was driving uh, M&A activity uh, around the world. Anyway, we then sold that business to Scotiabank in 2005 and uh, essentially merged our business into the um, energy practice. And I uh, wound up uh, staying with Scotiabank for almost 11 years and uh, for about uh, nine, eight or nine of those years, I, I ran the Global Investment Bank. Um, all sectors, um, uh, including oil and gas. Anyway, uh, about just over three years ago, uh, I left Scotiabank to start our new investing firm called Watchers Energy Fund to focus exclusively on the North American E&P sector. And I started the fund because uh, I saw a change 
in the oil and gas sector that uh, I thought was was going to create investing opportunities driven by um, a change uh, in, in the structure uh, of the industry as opposed to being a cyclical change. Uh, and to give you just a quick context, the easiest way to think about it is, in my say recent history, uh, I'm talking about the last 50 years. And, and it, when you look at the North American oil business over a 50-year period, there's the first 40 years, which is 1970 to 2009. And then there's the last 10 years, 2010 till today. Uh, and the uh, first 40-year period was uh, characterized by what I've described as the age of scarcity. And why that 40-year period is relevant is that U.S. oil production uh, peaked in 1970 at 9.6 million barrels a day. And then fell pretty steadily over the next 40 years to 2009 to about 5 million barrels a day. And throughout that period, and what was driving that is that um, finding oil and gas, and particularly oil, was becoming progressively uh, difficult. Uh, this was an age where the thesis was that it's a maturing industry, it's called a sunset industry, and uh, because it was becoming progressively uh, more difficult to find oil in North America and, and had this thesis of scarcity through a hypothesis by the by industry participants that, that whatever value oil was going to be uh, currently, it would be worth more in the future because it's becoming harder and harder to find. Now, that overarching theme of scarcity created a, a number of dynamics in the industry. And the, the first one was it created an operating model that led to oil and gas companies wanting to grow reserves in production. And they wanted to grow reserves in production because they think, well, whatever it's worth today, it's going to be worth more tomorrow because this is getting harder and harder to find. That in turn, led to an industry structure, uh, Tim, where there ended up being a symbiotic M&A model between large, medium, and small companies. And what that led to is uh, a system essentially where large companies would end up having non-core assets. They would divest them to uh, generally to small companies. And those small companies operating model was to cut costs, do a better job exploiting them, cut G&A, build these things up, generally the 10, 20,000 barrel a day uh, companies, and then sell themselves to uh, medium-sized companies who generally were uh, themselves trying to cut costs, consolidate areas, become bigger, and then sell themselves to large companies. Uh, and who would end up having, of course, non-core assets in this sort of daisy chain of assets and companies would continue um, for a very long time. And, and that's basically how the industry got structured for about 40 years. And what drove that was poor drilling results. I mean, it was hard to find oil in North America. And so what people did is they bought it rather than drilled for it. Now, that informed a lot of things in the industry, including the investing model. 
uh, which was a third dynamic. And the investing model was driven by, in part, the thesis of scarcity, where an investor would say, I'm going to allow the or support the operating model where companies are trying to grow reserves in production, which meant that they were reinvesting a very high percentage of their cash flow, if not all of the cash flow, to try and grow reserves in production. But as an investor, why you would invest in industry was for the potential capital gain as a result of the M&A cycle, that M&A dynamic, which I just mentioned. So they'd say, well, geez, I know I'm not going to get any dividends or it's going to be a super modest dividend, but I've got a, I'm back in a really good management team and they've got a really good assets and they're going to, go to grow production. I'm going to sell that. That business is going to get sold one day for uh, a big capital gain and that's how I make my return. So that was essentially a 40-year the dynamics of the North American oil business. Now, what what happened is, is that, of course, in long, by uh, 2009, new technology uh, came along, uh, horizontal multi-stage frac, uh, that it disrupted that model. And what what how it disrupted that model in those dynamics was as a result of of the industry going through this technology almost overnight from being chronically drilling location poor to drilling location rich. And if you are a, uh, a typical company on a historic basis, so say a medium-sized 50,000 barrel a day company, it'd be typical for you to be counting your potential drilling locations in the tens, maybe have 30 locations, 50 locations. In terms of inventory, uh, might be a two-year drilling inventory, and you were facing declines, and hence you had a high desire to buy things. Now, almost overnight, that same company would go from having drilling locations in the tens to maybe drilling locations more than a thousand, and they'd go from say a two-year drilling inventory to a 10, 12, 15-year drilling inventory. And what that did is a number of things. And first of all, going back to those few dynamics is the operating model, which is grow reserves in production, stayed in place where companies were spending all the cash flow or more than now than 100% of their cash flow to rapidly grow reserves in production. But what happened is the industry dynamic, that symbiotic relationship between large, medium, and small companies creating a very high uh, velocity of M&A transactions changed in that for the first time in more than 40 years, companies preferred to drill for reserves in production rather than buy it. And what that did is that led to a collapse in M&A demand. And what that's led to is a disruption of the investing model. And going back to what I was saying that companies, uh, investors were uh, buying for the capital gain on the assumption that their company would be sold one day. Well, in fact, what happened is that now companies no longer, the historic buyers of these uh, smaller and medium-sized oil and gas companies no longer wanted to, uh, to buy, they wanted to drill. What that led to is trapped capital as companies became illiquid as a result of that collapse in M&A. 
uh, demand. Now, uh, uh, and what I would quickly say, this, uh, this took um, a number of years to become apparent. Uh, while the technology uh, started being developed in 2009, it wasn't until uh, five or six years later where it became apparent that M&A demand had really evaporated. Now, one of the reasons why there's been as much pain in the industry as there has been um, over the last um, five or six years is that the industry misinterpreted this structural change as a result of a technology disruption as a cyclical change. And what I mean by a cyclical change is what was quite pervasive as a, as a thought process in the industry was that the reason M&A had collapsed, and by the, the evidence was overwhelming that M&A had, had, had collapsed, and this is by 2014, 2015, it, it was becoming, but the industry got confused as to why it had collapsed. And the common dominant thesis was that it was a result of falling commodity prices. And that, oh, well, uh, oil prices were $100, now they're $50. And as a consequence, uh, there's less cash flow available, uh, less capital available to make acquisitions. So the corollary conclusion became, oh, well, once commodity prices recover, then there'll be more cash in the system, and therefore M&A will return. That was actually dead wrong. You're, you're speaking about 2014, 2016, the last kind of commodities cycle you know, decline, and companies were really well hedged coming out of that. So do you think that contributed to them maybe convincing themselves of, oh, it's just oil prices, things are going to go back to the way they were? It allowed every, you know, the banks, everyone to kind of kick the can down the road. And you know, you, would you foresee this as a bubble? I mean, you, you know, I, I've, I've read that you, you know, made analogies of kind of the, the, the shale revolution on the back of this technology innovation you're referencing almost to the tech bubble in 99. You refer to it as the oil tech wreck. Can you kind of expand upon that? You were, you were getting that point before I cut you off. Sure. So essentially what happened is that, and just going back to the sort of misinterpretation, which, I'll, which leads to why we say that we call this the oil tech wreck, is that the industry thought that uh, lower commodity prices were, was killing M&A, when in fact it was technology was killing M&A. And uh, we were in a fortunate situation in that in uh, when we were in the M&A business, what we really pioneered are uh, running auctions for companies and, uh, and assets. We ran over, uh, over a 25-year period we ran over uh, 250 of these auctions. And what we found in past commodity price collapse, uh, say 1998, when commodity prices fell, um, what we had seen in the past is the number of bids, the demand would actually go up. And the reason being is there was a very strong desire to be seen to be buying on the dip. And it didn't happen in uh, 2014, 2015, and the reason being is there's been this technological change. And uh, because there was that misinterpretation, that led to a lot of misallocation of capital to the, the business on the expectation that it would rapidly uh, return to where it was historically. 
and and it and it didn't and it still hasn't and the reason being is the technology is still are still pervasive um but to get back to your your point about you know why we call it the oil tech wreck is that i mentioned there's sort of two uh periods there's uh, the last 50 years the first 40 years 2000 uh, sorry, 1970, 2009, and then uh, 2010 uh, to today. What you see is that this has been an incredible technology in growing production because in that time frame, 2009 to today, uh, U.S. oil production grew from about 5 million barrels a day to about 13 million barrels a day. So it added about 8 million barrels a day of production. You know, an incredible, incredible uh, technical achievement. However, uh, if you look at that 10-year period, it also divides itself into sort of two five-year periods, sort of 2009 to 2014 and then 2015 uh, to today. And why the, 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 the divides into two roughly five-year periods is that the first five-year period, oil, say, was around $100 a barrel. And in that time, oil production increased roughly from about 5 million barrels a day to about 8 million barrels a day, added about 3 million barrels a day, while oil uh, was about $100. Oil then, of course, um, fell to about half that level, in fact, something around $55 from uh, over the last five years up till very recently. And uh, But oil production continued to increase from 8 million barrels a day to about 13 million barrels a day, so about another 5 million barrels a day. You put another way is of that over the last 10 years through this incredible technology that added 8 million barrels a day, more than half of it was at these lower prices called you know, around the mid 50s for WTI. Now, the narrative of the industry through that time was that the uh, technology is, uh, improvements were so good, you know, drilling efficiencies and, and effectiveness productivity of these wells um, was on a continuous improvement basis and got so good is that the industry could earn just as good returns at mid-50 WTI, the 50s WTI per barrel, um, as they were at 100. Now, in fact, if you actually look at the arithmetic, if you look at, say, the returns at the U.S. oil and gas was in, industry was earning between 2009 and 2014. Um, it was generally mean its cost of capital. Uh, say, uh, S&P 500 uh, energy index or say the Russell 3000 uh, energy subcomponent. It was earning 8 to 10% uh, returns on capital, essentially meeting its cost of capital. Oil prices then fell, though, from let's say 2015, 2015 and of 2019, that five-year period, the uh, oil industry returns collapsed. And it actually averaged about two to three percent returns. So, in fact, the U.S. shale business and the main focus on the oil business for the last five years was just vaporizing capital. And put another way, is the U.S. oil business over the last five years, 2015 to 2019, you know, had this economic experiment of you know could it continue to earn uh, um, its cost of capital uh, uh, during in these uh, lower periods, and, and to make a, a long story short, that is the largest failed economic experiment uh, since the Soviet Union. 
meaning it failed miserably. And it took a long time for investors and the industry to appreciate that. And it was only in the last year, primarily in 2019, where capital was um, left the industry as a result of these poor returns. Now, I mean, but another way is when you think of this great technology, it was a, a wonderful, wonderful um, technical uh, achievement. Uh, and it's had all these great positive benefits for, uh, for the United States, meaning, you know, this big peace dividend by having energy independence, which is fantastic. You know, you don't have to worry about the Middle East as, uh, as much in terms of what's going on, you know, which, which is great. But that technology, from an economic perspective, uh, was just horrible. Uh, and like a lot of technologies that are great, the problem with it is it got way overdone. And, and just like the internet bubble in the late 90s, great technology got way overdone. And, and to give you a sense on that, is going back to this 8 million barrel a day increase that the shale revolution brought over a 10-year period. The first 3 million barrels a day, so 5 to 8, net cost of capital at $100 a barrel. Now, could it have continued uh, to have some production beyond 8 million barrels a day with oil in the 50s? And the answer, I think, is yes. And the math that uh, we've done is we actually think about uh, maybe 15% Top end, twenty uh, percent of uh, U.S. oil shale is able to provide you know, meet its cost of capital in these lower prices. You know, I would say mid fifties WTI, but about uh, more than three quarters of all the shale oil drilling between 2015 and 2019 was grossly uneconomic. Put it another way, is what probably should have happened is that oil production in this new lower price should have gone from maybe 8 million barrels a day, could have added maybe another million barrels a day economically, so, you know, to get to 9 million barrels a day, yeah, probably could have added maybe another million barrels a day. Could have got to 10, maybe. I'm personally skeptical based on the arithmetic on, on returns, but this 11, 12, 13, the million was just burned, just burned. Uh, it made absolutely no economic sense. And unfortunately, the business is notorious for lag effect and you know, investors and industry participants not understanding that the uh, returns are uneconomic. And that's why we were uh, calling for, by the end of 2019, uh, our firm, that this was uh, completely uneconomically unsustainable and that we were at or near by the end of 2019, the uh, uh, peak of uh, U.S. shale oil production. So that's, and that's what, why we did describe that as effectively the, um, the oil tech wreck. So you think eight to nine million barrels a day of, of oil production in the U.S. is sustainable. Um, we're at 12 to 13 right now. With with COVID nineteen just shocking demand um, and sucking it out of the supply, you know, demand curve globally, has this accelerated what would have been a slow tapering of bankruptcies and you know 
production dwindling down to that level? Do you think we just quickly go to that? And if so, you know, what, what peak Permian, what does that mean for the Permian? Um, you know, it's still the most economic basin uh, in comparison to a lot of others in, in North America. So do, do you see that decline in production to get to that sweet spot that's economic coming from other basins uh, and getting shut in? Or is it, is, is the Permian not as good as everyone thinks from, from y'all's perspective um, to get there? That, that's kind of one question I'll let you take a, a stab at. Sure. So our view, we, you know, we were, uh, as I described uh, publicly, uh, that we were at or near peak Permian. Uh, and it was just simple, simple arithmetic in that the capital had left the industry. And because it had left the industry, it was not going to be sustainable. And that's why we would have all uh, U.S. oil shale basins, but including the Permian. Now, since that time, and you know, here we are now in early April of, of 2020, two and a half or three months a- after we called for peak Permian, we see uh, that likely uh, production is going to start falling for U.S. shale probably later this month, um, certainly into, uh, into early May, and it's going to uh, a- accelerate through the balance of the year and into 2020. Now, uh, the dynamics that are driving that being, of course, a collapse in oil prices, all that's really doing is speeding up the movie, meaning this was going to happen anyway because capital had left the business, and this just accelerates that process. And moving down the chessboard a couple of steps, what's going to happen? I'm going to say, while when we called for peak Permian in January of 2020. That was just after the IEA had come out at the year end 2019 and forecasted that over the next 10 years, U.S. oil production was actually going to grow from 13, about 13 million barrels a day to about 19 million barrels a day, which was going to account for 85% of global oil growth in that 10-year period. Now, um, we called that out as a fantasy. That, that was never going to happen. And the reason being is that the returns just did not support it, uh, or more specifically, returns did not support it at $55 uh, a barrel a day. In fact, it was going to start, uh, start to fall. What we see happening now is that, and, and this is now gone from being obviously a uh, a lone voice uh, calling for peak Permian three months ago said many industry analysts now are estimating U.S. oil production to fall um, something over a million barrels a day in 2020 and uh, differing estimates of what will happen in 2021 depending on their view on where the commodity price uh, goes. Our view is that this continues to fall through 2021 for uh, at least another million barrels a day end up taking off probably more than two million barrels a day over uh, between now and the end of 2021. And the, the reason being is the industry now has become very clear about the U.S. oil shale business, tight, um, tight oil uh, business. It, it has been revealed to be uneconomic at $55 a barrel. 
And so as a consequence, we don't see capital returning to the U.S. oil shale business until prices are materially higher than $55 uh, a barrel. Now, I quickly would say is the there are some great portions of basins that are economic at $55. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, there's maybe uh, 10-15% of U.S. shale business that yeah, can be its cost of capital at $55. Uh, and they will you know, continue uh, to attract capital. But the, the large majority uh, fails to do that. Now, if the U.S. Is, is going to actually, if we're correct, and uh, oil, U.S. oil production moves from 13 million barrels a day to probably sub-11 million barrels a day, and maybe even getting closer to 10 million barrels a day over the next 18 months, what does that mean for U.S. energy independence, U.S. energy security? Well, what we had this really amazing situation over the last few years where the U.S. produced 13 million barrels, they got to U.S. energy independence while having low prices, low prices being, say, in the mid-50s. Uh, based on the returns the industries uh, earned, that was just not sustainable. One of those things is not sustainable. So, I mean, put another way is you could achieve U.S. energy independence again, say, going back to 13 million barrels a day, but not a $55 WTI. It's going to have to be materially higher than that, $65, $70 a barrel plus to be able to get back to that level. But another way is you, you have, sort of have to see the United States facing a choice. You, know, you could have cheap oil prices and not have U.S. energy independence or higher oil prices and achieve U.S. energy independence. But you can't have low oil prices and U.S. energy independence, which is what the United States was able to enjoy, however briefly, over the last uh, couple of years, um, that we don't see coming back again. So what are the geopolitical and, and macro drivers that achieve that type of market environment? High oil prices to thus enable higher production and, and higher you know, supply percentage globally to be energy independent? Well, I think the first assumption you've got to make is that the world ultimately, uh, the world's economy ultimately does recover from the COVID-19 demand destruction. How long that, that's going to take is, is obviously tough to figure out. It depends a lot on what steps governments uh, take. Is, you know, is, that a, is that a 12-month process? Is it an 18-month process, 24 months? It's some significant period of, of time. But let's assume that that happens and U.S. Uh, uh, global oil demand re- returns to the uh, level it was uh, a couple of months ago, let's say you know, 101 million barrels a day of, of, of demand. The positive thing from the U.S. oil industry's perspective is that going back to that IEA study, which I called a fantasy, that fantasy that the U.S. would go grow from 13 to uh, 19 million barrels a day over the next 10 years, what that study also identified was that U.S. oil production was going to account for 85% of the growth in, in uh, supply, uh, which roughly matches demand uh, over the next 10 years. What that really spoke to is how competitive is the U.S. 
the oil business relative to international alternatives, big international projects. And the punchline is the U.S. Uh, shale oil business on a relative basis to these big international blocks is actually very competitive. That's why 85% of the growth is going to come to, from uh, the U.S. Now, so it's not like, oh, well, if, if the U.S. doesn't work at $55 a barrel, which is what we've been saying, there's all these other great international projects which, which can step in the breeze to uh, fill supply. That's actually not the case. And so for uh, that global demand, I mean, uh, if one that uh, returns, still is going to have to be, uh, the U.S. is going to be a very uh, key and likely majority portion of filling that demand. But it, it's not going to fill it at $55. It's going to have to fill it at a, at a much higher price. a barrel plus, which which does make a significant difference on rates of return uh, for it. So, meaning, put put another way, is the U.S. can still play a a very important geopolitical role in supplying uh, oil, most uh, importantly, obviously, for its own domestic needs, but not at these, uh, what the kind of oil prices that prevailed over the last five years. You know, We've talked about COVID-19, you know, you, you just kind of looped in the competitiveness of, of, of shale versus international projects. So the price war that's happening simultaneously with COVID-19 between Russia and Saudi Arabia is what's driving down prices even further. You know, the, the other, it's, it's not like they're just doing this and, and we're the only ones suffering. You know, I, I listened to uh, an interview with, with an energy CEO the other day. He was saying, Saudi Arabia is projected to lose somewhere around $100 billion per year if they keep putting supply out at this rate. Russia, 50 to $70 billion a year. So there's significant pain there as well. And, and just the idea is someone's going to blink first. Who is it? What do you think the – how does that play out in terms of the rebalance effect and, and where that leaves shale at the end of this? And, you know, if shale, the shale business is devastated and there's a few left standing, so the, the others around the world are going to be devastated as well. And so, you know, how, how does that look in, in your eyes and where does that leave a firm like yourselves to, to maybe look for opportunities to invest at the bottom to get good returns? Sure. So to focus on uh, the price war that got initiated essentially during the, the month of March, and with uh, an intention, while there was this dispute effect between you know, Saudi and Russia, you know, the real war was against U.S. shale and uh, wanting uh, the, the Saudi and uh, Russia uh, wanting to go to war and, and reduce the market share of U.S. shale. Well, what became very clear is that uh, for uh, OPEC Plus, to win that war against U.S. shale was unbelievably brief, meaning Saudi was able to declare victory in effectively a period of days. Like to give you just a sense on how fast they were able to declare victory against U.S. shale in that war, capital got cut, uh, generally speaking, by you know, uh, back-acting uh, companies within two, three, four, five days of 
Saudi announcement that they're going to increase production from what had been sub 10 million barrels a day to north of 12 million barrels a day. Now, to give you a sense on the speed of that victory, you know, the only thing in modern history that you can really think about in terms of, you know, that fast a war victory is when, you know, the U.S. invaded Grenada in the, in the 1980s. You know, it's a two-day war. Like, poof, it's over. Now, you know, why the victory was so fast against U.S. shale goes back to what I was mentioning earlier, was that the opponent being U.S. shale, you know, one side of this fight was already very weakened. So it needed just frankly a little push. And that is obviously the collapse of the oil prices to say in the uh, around $50 a barrel to 35. And the uh, U.S. shale business immediately had to capitulate. So, you know, that was a brief, brief, uh, brief, brief war. Now, of course, that quickly got dwarfed by having them already declared victory. I mean, to give you a sense on that, on Friday, March the 6th, Saudi <clears throat> walked out of the meeting with Russia saying that we're, they were going to increase production to north 12 million barrels a day. By the following Monday, the 9th, uh, U.S. production, some U.S. producers were cutting production, uh, cutting capital expenditures, and consequent production would fall. By Wednesday, the 11th, I think, in fairness, Saudi can declare victory over U.S. shale. You know, it was a four or five-day war, and poof, it's over. Now, what, what quickly superseded it is by later that week, that week you know, Thursday, Friday, into the weekend, the demand destruction rapidly accelerated from this uh, social distancing initiatives to, to governments around the world. And that's what has effectively swamped the market and took it from what had been in the mid-30s down into the, uh, down into the 20s. So that's a, a, essentially what has happened. Now, I mean, of course, the uh, uh, producers, OPEC Plus, you know, um, are going to be uh, working to try and take some additional production uh, off the market, which will have some positive effects. But of course, the, the, the dominant process that's going to have to really solve oil prices and get, get them back to where they've been um, previously is the world returning to its historic uh, demand level driven by uh, economic activity. Uh, but now going forward, and that's going to be obviously a very bumpy process, but now going forward, what we would expect is that U.S. Uh, oil production, until oil is back well above its historic level, uh, being $55 a barrel to continue to decline. And, and, and we're, it's really not going to um, stop those declines until we get into a much larger, a much higher trade range, maybe $65, $70 a barrel, something in, in, in that order of range. Now, from a investing perspective, what this is going to lead to is that there are going to be a number of companies in the United States who are going to become uh, very financially distressed uh, because they will be effect effectively uh, forced to go into blowdown, meaning they will have, some will have actually shut production in, but a large percentage of the declines will just be as a result of not uh, spending additional drilling capital. And as those producers face declines, minimum financial requirements that they need, whether they're minimum volume commitments from midstream contracts 
or just loans that they have from banks and bondholders will ultimately tip over many companies to becoming finance distress and clearly there'll be a number of bankruptcies uh, as, as a result of, of this. So it's going to be very, it's going to be a very, very challenged time for the industry. Now, ultimately, on the other side of this, what we're going to see is a consolidated, healthier, but smaller U.S. oil business. Smaller, both by number of companies, as, as consolidation is happening, consolidation happens as we try and um, cut down costs, but also smaller in terms of amount of production. That, that uh, you know, maybe going back to say a 10 million barrel a day world uh, relative to a, a 13 million barrel a day world. Now, your your career M and A guy, Trish, on the banking side, can you compare this wave of consolidation that we have going forward to anything you've experienced in your career? I mean. I wasn't active in the industry at this point, but I, I can only imagine the late 90s is about to happen again. The formation of Exxon and Chevron and Conoco and all those super majors and majors, you know, can you speak to what kind of fed into that? And if if that happens again and those those players are the ones that start, you know, cleaning up the aisle, if you may, uh, as, as independents and and juniors and, and mid-cap guys really struggle and all of a sudden you just, they all get rolled up at pennies of the dollar. Or is it, is it funds like yourself who have a bit of a contrarian view as of a year or so ago and are well positioned? So there will be con- uh, some of the consolidation that's going to happen will be similar to what it was for instance, you mentioned the, the late 90s, you know, uh, was it uh, $10 a barrel in 1998? And that's that element is similar to what's going to happen today in that it became apparent that the industry needed to cut costs, rationalize businesses, cut GNA, cut, cut operating costs to be able to survive in a lower price environment. And that's certainly what will be similar. What will be different is that the industry, going back to what I was saying earlier, has moved from being drilling location poor to drilling location rich. And as a consequence, just buying reserves in production for the sake of buying reserves in production, almost somewhat indiscriminately based on quality, quality being the economics underneath that, will be quite different in that companies with top quality assets, I mean, you know, the trophies, you know, top decile, drilling opportunities, those assets will remain in demand because they can prioritize capital and, and effectively that, that drilling capital will meet cost of capital. For much of the industry though, at historic prices, you know, let's say $55 WTI, those assets will not attract capital and will have very modest value because essentially they will really just be going on blowdown at $55. Now, if we get back to 65, 70, which would be our expectation over time, some of those companies will attract buyers, but most of them, many, many, many companies, I would describe as so-called zombie companies, where there's really no bid uh, for them because their underlying earning power of their assets are poor at lower commodity prices, lower commodity prices being $55 or lower a barrel. Uh, so some of those you know, may be the, 
see the living dead. And when I say the living dead, they just get smaller and smaller and smaller because there's no capital being attracted to them. So, so in a world of, of limited capital going forward, you know, the, the theory of Exxon's going to go buy everybody just because it's such a good value uh, buy and everyone's so discounted. You know, you can make parallels to the Canadian uh, EMP industry right now. I mean, some of the discounts on some of these publicly traded companies are, are extreme in comparison to quality assets and everything. But, but you're saying, no, the, there's a limited amount of capital and that capital is going to be put towards a drill bit and any type of M&A roll-up strategies that are deployed are only going to be for the ones that they never really feel they can develop in this type of environment and be economic. And that's the shift. And that's why you're going to continue to have these zombies out there. Uh, that, that's, that, that's certainly right, Tim. And that, I would say a couple of things. First of all, part of the prevailing wisdom when we called for peak Permian at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, one of the reasons or arguments given why the U.S. shale business was going to continue to grow, or Permian was going to continue to grow, was the fact that people would point to the super majors, particularly Chevron and Exxon. They were going to grow their Permian production yeah, even without access to capital, because again, what I was saying before is that the rest of the industry, uh, capital had been cut off. But the thesis was, oh, don't worry about that. You know, Permian will still go because, well, because Exxon and Chevron, was, um, they've got really access to low cost of capital and uh, they'll continue to drill. Well, in fact, our, our experience with Chevron and Exxon is that they're actually very capital disciplined. And there would be no reason for us to assume that their returns that in, in drilling for U.S. shale oil was going to be any different than the industry at, at large, $55, which was horrendously poor. And that over time, they would realize that these are, are, are not attractive uh, returns and they would withdraw capital. Now, going back to where I said, this is a, sp- a sped up movie both in these lower commodity prices, both Chevron and Exxon, amongst the areas that they cut fastest and deepest was the Permian. And that was because of um, clearly what they would have seen are the the challenged returns from that uh, region at $55, let alone something dramatically lower as a result of this um, uh, COVID crisis that that we're facing uh, right now. Put another way is, what I, we would assume is that the the very largest companies, you know, the super majors, they may take the opportunity to make acquisitions in this lower price environment. But uh, if they do, it will be very quality driven. Meaning, if you've got the you've got top decile, you know, trophy assets, you got a chance that these bigger companies might buy uh, a very limited number of targets. Put another way is, uh, and this is maybe one of the fundamental changes, is that if you had sort of an average quality asset base, you know, company historically, but if you had reserves in production, there was still a really good chance you could sell your business. That was in the age of scarcity, you know, prior to 2009. Today, in this age of Drilling opportunity rich. If you if you really have sort of average quality assets, you're really stuck. 
you really have no ability to monetize the business. And so in our view, the vast majority of the EMP businesses out there, which by definition would have average quality assets, um, are functionally illiquid. There is no bid for these businesses. And so as a consequence, the consolidation that you would think would take place uh, won't. I could say there's really more consolidation taking place than there had been recently, because I say it's, I think some of the trophy companies get uh, get bought now. But the average quality company is, is, uh, is and will likely remain illiquid. Could you make an argument? You know, for for starters, there's technology innovation is not going anywhere. If anything, it's going faster. AI. Um, robotics, you know, those types of things that a lot of companies have used kind of to play to the narrative you mentioned on, you know, needing to optimize their operations and, and, and get skinnier and, and become more cash flow generating machines versus looking for that exit. Do you think the industry reinvents itself? And maybe it's not, I think one of your messages here is it, it's not shale, maybe it's other types of reserves conventional water flood type stuff, heavier oils, but there's certain technologies that surface that make those more economic and, and you get more manufacturing type companies that aren't looking to exit, but find better ways to get cash distributions to investors and investors maybe plow their money into those technologies. And that's the indirect way the industry starts to see capital again, or you just have these bigger, more efficient companies and, and you just, as an investor, go in looking to get a distribution. Uh, how how do you kind of see this playing out? And I'd like to open the door on you describing the structure of Watchers Energy Fund because you haven't really made your investments planning for an exit. You know, I, I think if you listen to this, you could kind of think to yourself, man, what a shit time to be a private equity fund. But in the same time, you're a private equity investor. So how have you approached all this differently Obviously, you believe in what you're saying, and you wouldn't be making investments knowing you're going to lose. So, um, you know, how do you foresee the industry playing out, and how are you going about that as an investor? So, what, what our firm does, Washington Energy Fund, is we describe ourselves as a deep value, special situations uh, in, investor. And what we mean by that is we're buying established businesses you know, with reserves, production, uh, cash flow, but in a business that uh, importantly has top quality assets, we look at trophy assets, top decile assets. And the reason we want to buy trophies is that you have the ability to do two things. Number one, be able to get equity payout to investors. What I mean by equity payout is how we look at an investment is we assume that the M&A market, which I've said is, has collapsed, that never comes back. Now, we, uh, it doesn't mean that we don't ever think we'll have a chance of selling our businesses. We, we, we might end up selling our, our businesses. Uh, of course, what I would say is, if you have a top decile asset, you got a chance of selling your business because your asset might compete for ca- capital relative to um, a potential buyers. But we don't count on it. You know, that was that was the vast majority, you know, 95% plus of all private equity on a historic basis over the last three decades 
exited through a corporate transaction. What do you classify as a trophy asset? Can you, can you go into that? Because I think the last 10 years is core, core rock and a shale play. But, but Pengrove that you just closed on um, via Kona Resources in Canada is heavy oil, water floods. Sure, sure. So essentially, you really need, you can really, a trophy sounds somewhat subjective, like, you know, like you're talking about a painting. You know, what's a, a trophy painting, which is using the eye of the beholder. You can actually do it just through arithmetic. And uh, essentially what you need is three things to be able to have a, a trophy asset. The first is you need a very large resource base, uh, long reserve life. And the reason you need a long reserve life is so that um, this is the definition of a volatile industry. And if you have a short reserve life, index to do have a, a counter a period of um, low commodity prices you may be selling off a substantial portion of your assets at low, at low prices with a, with a long reserve life you protect yourself um, against that um, volatility the second thing that you need is um, high margins and by high margins uh, is you know after royalties operating costs uh, what is effectively your your net backs? And then the um, third thing that you need is a uh, an attractive sustaining capital base, meaning a, a, a very uh, key way of being able to evidence a trophy asset is uh, what percent of your capital, or sorry, of your cash flow, do you have to spend to hold the asset flat? And what I would quickly would say is that that criteria is where a very high percentage of, but not all, of shale oil assets uh, really fall down, is that they uh, require $55 oil, a very high percentage of their cash flow is devoted just to holding the asset flat because of the rapid declines uh, in, in the business. So when we put those three things together, we're looking for a business that provides substantial free cash flow after holding production flat. Uh, and why that's important is what we're looking for is a suite of assets that uh, have those characteristics that allow us to effectively dividend out our investments. So to give you just a sense, it's, it's partially tied to reserve life index, but we want to be able to, um, when we make an investment, to be able to dividend out our equity and, and assume that we have modest leverage that uh, we can dividend out that in, entirely in a reasonable period of time. And then effectively we're just paying, playing with the profits. Now, that is not historically how the business has financed itself or, or the investing approach. So I mentioned a little bit earlier, um, instead it's been entirely capital gains driven where uh, 100% or more than 100% of the cash flow has been reinvested in real reserves in production on the expectation of a capital gain. But for that to work, you need a robust M&A market. And we don't think that that M&A market is coming back anytime soon. So that's how so that's how we're approaching it. Now, the trick in investing in trophies in the oil and gas business, like it is in any industry, is that the trophies 
tend to be very expensive, you know, top decile, you know, best assets, you know, everybody wants those. So uh, the art, so to speak, is how to get them at a good deal. And that's why uh, we focus on what are generally described as special situations, which is kind of fancy finance talk of something has gone wrong with the business. Uh, often it's because there's been too much leverage in the business, but it's not, that's not always uh, the case. The business has to be recapitalized, restructured, uh, repositioned. Uh, and that's how, you know, these are complex situations to be complex shareholdings, you know, too much leverage, um, non-core assets, but have to be, have a lot of, you know, hand-holding and, and uh, simplifying uh, to make more attractive. So that's that's the niche that that, that we're um, focused on, and not surprisingly, you know, the industry, given the volatility that we've just ex- uh, experienced, we see there um, there's a the, the number of special situations out there is growing. Meaning the, the target market that, that that we're focused on is is increasing, frankly, on a daily basis. So you guys launched in 2017. You put about a, a billion and a half of Canadian dollars to work, right? Um, across Strath and Kona, both in the Canadian upstream space. That, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, is is roughly half of the capital deployed in the M and A uh, activity for Canada in that time frame. You know, oil prices have gone up and down. They've been lower. You mentioned kind of fifty to sixty-five dollars a barrel on average WTI. You know, in that same time frame, the discounts to the Canadian, you know, uh, WCS, uh, Western Canadian Select, have been on average ten to twenty dollars a barrel. At times, twenty to forty. You know, recently WCS has gotten as low as four to five bucks a barrel. What I'm trying to say, Adam, you're a smart guy. What do you know that that others don't know in Canada, how have you, you, you keep talking about arithmetic and it's just the numbers don't lie. Is it just that the special situations are, are incredibly unique in Canada right now and you feel the longer term play that it, it just makes sense to, to do some of the transactions you've done? Because it, it looks pretty dire in Canada, right? I mean, the US is it's back into a corner right now, but Canada has been back into a corner for quite some time. Yeah, so I may have just comment on Canada versus the U.S. So uh, our, our firm is active on both sides of the border. Um, we have as many of our investing professionals in the United States as we do in Canada. And over the last three years, um, we have put all of our capital work in Canada um, instead of the United States. And it's really just driven by the fact that we've found better deals in Canada, not uh, the United States. Now, um, if you look on a historic basis, there are periods of time when the Canadian sector is actually, on average, more expensive than the U.S. Uh, the U.S. basin, and there are periods of time when the U.S. business is uh, more expensive than Canada. Maybe just as a quick uh, reference point, if you look at the 2010s, basically that sort of, kind of 2010 to 2014. On average, Canada, as they measured by, say, multiples of EBITDA, this is a simplistic message uh, or, or measurement, uh, was more expensive than Canada. Uh, last five years, uh, the U.S. has been, on average, more expensive than, uh, than, than Canada. Now, I also would say that doesn't mean that 
Uh, in the last five years, all the good deals are in Canada. There's no good deals in the United States. It's just gives you a sense on, on average. Now, having said that, when you're dealing in a very volatile business, uh, in a business that has been challenged, just setting aside the, the um, uh, recent COVID-19 crisis, but before that, over the last sort of five years, the, the, the way to deal with a um, challenge interest uh, industry is uh, a couple of ways. The first is to um, lightly leverage your investments. And what um, we've spent uh, more than uh, three quarters of our acquisitions we financed with equity as opposed to debt. I mean, we've been deleveraging uh, businesses. And to give you a sense on that, um, you know, uh, we've made uh, a number of investments building two companies, Strath Resources and Kona Resources. But one of the investments um, we bought out of bankruptcy, um, it's on CCAA. Another, uh, which is a company called Mosaic Energy, which we re- renamed Strath. Uh, another investment that we made, Penrose Energy, was a prepackaged bankruptcy. So uh, another was taking a, a private, a public company called Northern Blizzard, and you know, was taken public at $19 a share a number of years ago. You know, we privatized it at $3 a share. So you know, these are generally companies that have fallen on hard times. Now, uh, and, and we're as we're using a high percentage of equity, so to, to, to keep our um, uh, balance sheet strong. So that's kind of the first way to try and uh, manage that. Um, and, and but the second way, going back to what I was mentioning a little bit earlier, if you buy the trophies, you got the highest margins. Um, you know, we have uh, on a portfolio basis, we have one of the lowest break evens on a sustaining capital basis, meaning. Prices that we need to be able to hold production flat uh, in the industry, and that's one of the ways you sort of protect protect yourself against the volatility. So that just gives you to answer maybe your, your your point about how do you protect yourself when, when you got these you know, tough tough volatility. The third thing that I would say, just more specifically about Canada versus the U.S., is one of the principal challenges that uh, Canada has faced of late has been lack of egress um, out of the country, lack of pipeline capacity, whether there hadn't been uh, a large export pipeline uh, built in Canada in about more than 10 years. And there's been a number of uh, efforts to uh, build several different pipelines uh, that for uh, various political reasons were um, being held up. Um, at this particular point in time, there are uh, three significant export pipelines under construction, um, Enbridge Line 3, Trans Mountain, and uh, Keystone XL, which are all uh, being built, all scheduled to um, come on stream during the next six to 36 months. And so that historic challenge or, or recent challenge for Canada, uh, we think is uh, likely going to abate. And so your comment about WCS prices, likely in the medium term as these new pipelines come on stream, will likely have more uh, reasonable or inconsistent differentials. I, I guess in closing here, Adam, what, where do you see the private equity space going? You know, you said capital is going to leave um, at least the kinds of capital that we're looking for the capital gains. Does private equity cease to exist going forward? There's only a few firms. Does it shrink? I mean, pre-shale, a lot of private equity investments were 10 million bucks, 30 million bucks commitments, these half a billion dollar commitments, right? It, 
the chain, the scale of capital raised just completely transformed overnight. And that probably got bloated um, to what, to your point, an overbet on, on the technology revolution um, within shale. Do we go back to that? Do, do the private equity firms shrink? Do they disappear? Do they get a different cost of capital and have holding periods of 10 to 15 years versus five to seven? The pensions come in. Is it a different form of capital and, and it's no longer private equity? In closing here, you know, kind of speaking on behalf of your, your brother and in the, in the PE space, where do you see it going? So maybe there's a historic context. As you uh, may know, uh, historically, oil and gas private equity is that a dominant investing strategy, and that is making early stage investments to de-risk tier two, tier three assets. Uh, basically, um, uh, backing a strong technical team, management team, to be able to go into areas which aren't quite working technically yet right now, but that could be acquired um, on a relatively inexpensive basis. But that same technical team will have a uh, hypothesis as to how to make it uh, work when it hasn't worked in the past. And it could be a, you know, identifying a bypass pay or some sort of completion techni- uh, technique. But if they apply this technical approach to the asset, and if it works, um, they all get rich. That's been the private equity model in North America, uh, where over 90% of all private equity has been invested that way over the last 30 years. Um, and uh, in certain places, it worked extremely well. It was a very compelling investing strategy. Now, there's a couple of things um, about that. One, it's really the venture capital business. And... What I mean by that is it's actually quite risky. And the private equity guys know that. And they deal with it through portfolio diversification, where they say, well, geez, you know, I'm going to make 10 investments and I'm probably going to lose a lot of money on uh, four of them and four of them will kind of break even on. But they're looking for a couple of five beggars to make all the math work. So it's just like venture capital. But what was really key to that business model was exits, you know, being able to sell. Uh, particularly to be able to sell uh, all of those businesses, whether the winners or, or the losers. Uh, that model, we think, is really challenged today because of lack of exits. And to give you a, a sense on that, there are in North America today rough numbers. We think about 500 oil and gas companies backed by private equity. And we think that about 80% of those are illiquid. I mean, there's no bid for them. And the reason there's no bid for them is they've really ended up with uh, tier two, tier three assets. And which historically, in in the olden days, so to speak, uh, they'd be able to uh, uh, still be able to sell. Now, we do think actually about probably 20% of them, or maybe 100 plus companies, actually have ended up with uh, some really great assets um, and, and will be sold. Uh, but about, we think of something like 80% effectively going to have to go on blowdown uh, because there's just no bid for them. And so that's what we see yeah, going on in the early stage growth capital uh, oil and gas private equity uh, market. Uh, we're not in that market. We're doing something entirely different. We're buying established businesses you know, with reserves, production, cash flows, and very deliberately uh, trying to buy the uh, tier one uh, top, top decile. So that's sort of how, how um, we see the business uh, shaking out going forward. All righty, Adam. Well, 
it's been uh it's been a pleasure it's always fun to talk to you i appreciate you sharing your comments and and really going on the record right to to want to be historically correct when when others don't really necessarily agree with your point of view i think uh, i wish uh, everything you're 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 saying is starting to play out and you know that positions watchers energy fund really well right so i, I wish you guys best of luck going forward and if you want to have the floor kind of in some closing comments um you know, it, it's all yours, and, and then we'll wrap it up. Yeah, uh, um, I, I would say some of my comments may sound somewhat negative, you know, particularly on sort of the, the U.S. oil production uh, declining. Uh, in fact, I actually think this is a will ultimately be post this readjustment uh, a very positive time to be in the oil and gas in, investment business and in the oil and gas industry, much like. In the tech wreck, you know, things got way overdone in the late 90s and through the early 2000s, there was all kinds of carnage in the tech business. But ultimately, there were some great companies emerge that had uh, sustainable businesses that could be uh, valued on real financial metrics like cash flow. We see the same thing happening in the oil business in that this unconventional shale business is a is a wonderful technology that just got way overdone, attracted far too much capital. It led to, to uh, an unsustainably high uh, production level. Ultimately, capital leaving the business is going, it's going to readjust to a more sustainable level and provide investors with more attractive and, and measurable rates of return through cash payouts. It's just a painful adjustment when you go through an industry that ends up being overcapitalized. And that's essentially what's just happened here. But once that uh, adjustment is finished, I think this is going to be a wonderful industry to be investing in. Well, good stuff. Adam, I look forward to, you know, when we can all travel again and leave our homes. I look forward to getting up to Calgary and, and seeing you and in the interim, you know, stay safe and healthy. And we'll talk soon. Uh, Tim, thanks so much. Always a pleasure talking with you. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. Although Adam is not a direct investor in the mills and royalty space, we thought his insights on the upstream sector would provide a lot of value. If you're interested in meeting Adam or any of the other executives in our network, then I encourage you to join us at our upcoming events later this year our Canada Assembly in Calgary, our Northam Royalties Assembly in Houston, and our private oil and gas investment assembly at the New York Stock Exchange. For more information, please email me at tim.powell, that's P-A-W-U-L, at oilcouncil.com, or visit our website at www.oilcouncil.com. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, and be sure to share the episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks and see you next time.